0: The Institute, Institute, Institute for Justice, the National Law Firm for Liberty. Hello and welcome to Short Circuit, your weekly podcast on the federal courts of appeal. I'm your host, John Ross, joined today by Clark Neely and Evan Burnick of IJ's Center for Judicial Engagement. In addition to this podcast, we provide a free weekly email roundup summarizing federal circuit court decisions. Sign up at IJ.org slash short circuit. This week on the show, Maryland's assault weapons ban, warrantless surveillance from a utility pole and a fatal police shooting.
1: Clark. Well, so the first case, uh, Kolb uh, versus Maryland, is um, another in a line of of cases where the uh, question is whether a law that bans a certain imaginary class of firearms referred to as assault weapons is or is not constitutional, and more specifically in this case, uh, what is the proper standard of review for a court to apply? Um, Maryland is... The latest in in a series of states to try to uh, ban, uh, or I should say, a series of jurisdictions, because there was a municipality out of Chicago that we'll talk to talk about in a moment. But anyway, so uh, a number of uh, jurisdictions have tried to ban so-called assault weapons. There is no such thing as an assault weapon. Um, these are really just scary-looking weapons bans. Um, and the question in this case uh, is whether Maryland's law, which um, outlaws uh, various specifically identified "quote unquote" assault weapons, and large capacity magazines um, survives Second Amendment scrutiny, and if so, or, or more to the point, what should that scrutiny be?
0: What do you mean by a scary looking weapons ban, Clark?
1: Well, uh, again, there's no such thing as a quote-unquote assault weapon that everybody agrees on and and would say, okay, that's what that is. Uh, Essentially, what you're talking about is is firearms that have certain features, so uh, a pistol grip, a large-capacity detachable magazine, a barrel shroud, uh, things of that nature. And different jurisdictions have come up with different definitions, but there's no inherent or intrinsic quality that makes something Uh, an assault weapon, and the fact of the matter is the vast majority of firearms uh, sold and possessed in America today share the basic qualities uh, of of a so-called assault weapon in that they tend to be high-capacity semi-automatic firearms uh, that are capable of firing rounds uh, with each pull of a trigger, and in some jurisdictions and in some circumstances, that's classified as an assault weapon, and the question essentially is the extent of the government's ability to more or less arbitrarily select a group of those weapons and make them illegal tell
0: us about maryland's ban
2: maryland's ban covers uh, the vast majority of semi automatic um, rifles and it also covers large capacity magazines that you need in order to operate those rifles so it's a ban on it's a ban that would cover millions of weapons that are currently owned and operated by Americans. Um, In this particular case, and the significance of this case, uh, as was alluded to earlier, um, the uh, the core issue is what level of scrutiny to apply to a ban of this kind. Uh, the Supreme Court in District of Columbia v. Heller recognized an individual right to bear arms and to bear arms in self-defense, um, in defense of your home, but it didn't specify uh, the level of scrutiny to be applied on a ban that implicated that core right. So you've got a circuit split. Um, one uh, one circuit has applied intermediate scrutiny. Uh, the Seventh Circuit uh, applied a level of scrutiny that to my mind, is entirely unrecognizable. It may actually be weaker than rational basis review. And the court in this case, the Fourth Circuit, applied strict scrutiny, said this is a fundamental right. This um, uh, burdens the core of this fundamental right, therefore strict scrutiny.
1: Yeah, and and you can tell that the stakes are going to be high in terms of what standard of review applies, because the state's arguments are so ridiculous in this case. I mean, they're just absolutely silly. They're the kinds of arguments that the government would make in a rational basis case, knowing that it doesn't really matter what arguments you make, because the, the court is just going to rubber stamp the law anyway. So, for example... The state claims that uh, magazines, uh, uh, you know, which are the uh, you load rounds into a magazine, then you insert the magazine uh, into the weapon, and as Evan said, that's what enables the weapon to function and um, uh, load fresh rounds into the chamber after you fire. So the state's position is that a magazine really isn't even a firearm, and it's not covered at all by the Second Amendment. This if is you, an absolute... even if
2: you can't operate the gun without this magazine,
1: right? It's a completely preposterous argument. It would be like saying that the um, you know the, the the ink cartridge is not a pen or the ink is not part of a printing press and so we can ban uh, ink and and that's not a First Amendment problem. we can ban
2: the firing pin or the trigger. Yeah,
1: exactly. And and so this is a preposterous argument that would not fly in any other setting. Uh, But we see the governments in different Second Amendment cases make these kinds of arguments all the time, presumably in the hopes that the court will apply some version of rational basis review where the question isn't whether the government has come up with a good argument. The question is whether the government has come up with any argument. And then, of course, the court simply rubber stamps whatever the government's doing. That uh, appears the, that's not going to happen in this case because the Fourth Circuit has said no, uh, you need to apply strict scrutiny. That's a meaningful standard review, and these kinds of ridiculous arguments clearly are not going to pass muster. Another ridiculous argument that I'd be shocked if it passes muster is the state tried to argue that uh see assault weapons are not in common use, which is the standard announced by Heller and the reason uh, or, or the, the the way we argue that is the state of Maryland says uh... there's no evidence in the record that people commonly use assault weapons to resist actual crimes or to defend themselves in the homes there's two problems with that first of all it is the government's burden to come forward with evidence not the plaintiffs um, in, in heightened scrutiny cases and they fail to do that and second it's an extraordinarily tendentious definition of the word use the idea that a a, a, f- a given firearm is only in common use if it is in fact commonly used for commonly purposes fired of, for purposes of self-defense a, and even fired Um, And of course, the fact of the matter is there are all kinds of uh, uses that people uh, have for firearms, uh, including self-defense, but not limited to self-defense. And it is abundantly clear that most uses of a firearm in self-defense situations do not involve firing uh, the firearm. It, It involves brandishing the firearm.
2: So eventually the Supreme Court's going to have to weigh in and clarify the standard uh, of rev- uh, the standard of scrutiny that you're supposed to apply when you burden the fundamental right to bear arms and also the scope of that right. Uh, Heller had some ambiguity both because it didn't actually announce the standard of review and because towards the end of the opinion there are a bunch of qualifications oh by the way, we're not saying that uh, that states can't uh, uh, or the District of Columbia can't ban m 16s okay well then what about semi-automatic weapons how close are they to M16s? What is the scope of this right? So eventually the court's going to have to clarify things.
0: Did the court strike down the ban or what happens next?
2: Uh,
1: No. No, it remanded the the case to the district court with the exception of a couple of claims which it decided outright. There was one claim involving uh, equal protection because there is an exception in the law for retired police officers. They, unlike other civilians, are not permitted to, uh, uh, who are not permitted to own assault weapons, retired police officers are. The the, the Fourth Circuit rejected that equal protection challenge, and it also rejected uh, a vagueness challenge to a portion of the law that made it illegal to make quote-unquote copies uh, of certain uh, expressly prohibited uh, firearms, and uh, the Fourth Circuit uh, found that that was not unconstitutionally vague. But the rest of the case, the, the 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 ban of the assault weapons themselves uh, and the uh, ban on high-capacity magazines, that's going back to the district court for application of strict scrutiny.
2: Okay, let's move on to the next case. Evan. Yeah, this is a Fourth Amendment case. It involves uh, 10-week surveillance of a guy's farm uh, via a camera that was set up on a utility pole about 200 yards away from this farm. Uh, The local sheriff's departments had... Um, come to believe that he was that this individual was uh, in a felon in possession of a firearm uh, they reached out to the ATF the ATF initially tried to surveil his home by driving by ultimately concluded that they they couldn't do that without alerting him so they um, they set up a, uh, a a camera on a utility pole viewed him for a period of 10 weeks um, eventually found out that yes in fact he do, uh, he was a felon in possession of a firearm searched this place and now they're charging him with a crime and the question is when whether that evidence can come in or whether it was collected in violation of the fourth amendment because they didn't have a warrant and it sure seems like a search
1: Yeah, and it should be mentioned that this is apparently the world's shortest utility pole because uh, an ATF agent testified at trial that the view from the camera mounted on top of the utility pole was identical. And that's the word that's used in the opinion, identical to the view um, available uh, from vehicles driving by. So this, I guess, is a five-foot-tall utility pole. I've never seen one myself, but apparently this is a five-foot-tall utility pole. The uh, court... Doubles down on that point later in the opinion and, and emphasizes again that the agent testified that the view uh, from the camera mounted on top of this pole was the same as the view would have been from a passing car. You can probably tell from my tone of voice that I'm quite skeptical of whether that could possibly be true. What is 100% clear here is that they surreptitiously installed a camera on top of a utility pole. That is massively different in terms of the implications for people's privacy than parking a car across the street from your home where you can see the car. You can see that you're being surveilled and you can take steps accordingly. This is a surreptitious installment of a concealed camera on top of a utility pole where you absolutely don't expect that.
2: Right. And the fact of the matter is that the only reason that they relied upon this is because they couldn't see it from the street and they couldn't station an agent outside without alerting the people in the home who have the right to be in their home and to take measures to protect themselves from uh, the views of people who are on the street or on the sidewalk looking into their home. Um, So, yeah, it tortures the meaning of words to say that this wasn't a search. And yet, by the end of the opinion, the court has come to the conclusion that, no, in fact, it wasn't. And this is owing to the tortured state of our Fourth Amendment law.
1: Yeah, and the, and the court's um, the court's analysis of of whether it makes a difference that they used a camera, uh, a concealed camera in this case, uh, whether that makes a difference for in terms of people's reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, the court's analysis is quite silly and preposterous in this case. Uh, the idea that, that um, whatever, whatever you can view using your camera, and I, I presumably our listeners are aware that there are certain situations where people use, for example, their smartphones to observe things and to take pictures of things that would be more difficult to view with the naked eye, including parts of people's bodies. Um, The idea that there's no real difference uh, between um, uh, using, uh, let's say, a a smartphone or even a smaller concealed camera the way the police did in this case and uh, perceiving with your own eyes uh, other people's uh, bodies and or residences is just completely preposterous. Uh, And it's another example, unfortunately, I think, of one of these cases where the court really tortures common sense in order to reach um, perhaps a desirable result. I mean, let it be... Emphasize that the defendant in this case seems like a pretty bad guy. He was involved in a shootout with a a law enforcement officer some years before, in which the officer was killed for reasons that aren't fully explained in the opinion. The man was acquitted. uh, But uh, he has, for example, on his property a a picture of that officer and his family uh, dead. Um, It's a caricature, um, among other things. So he's a very anti government person. He seems like a very violent person. It may well be the case that he should go to jail. But the court really did have to torture common sense in order to. essentially shoehorn the search that occurred here into uh, or outside of the Fourth Amendment and uphold it as reasonable. This search was far from reasonable. It involved the surreptitious use of a camera in a place where no one would expect it. This was absolutely a search and it was absolutely unreasonable.
2: Right. And there are really two problems running through this case. I think that tie into two enduring problems with our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence at one time uh, at at the same time. Um, the first is the, con- the, idea- the conceit that this isn't a search. Uh, the Supreme Court has said for decades that um, there is a presumptive warrant requirement. If you are going to search somebody, you need to get a warrant. But it has been unwilling to actually deal with the reality of that pronouncement. It has created a number of exceptions to that warrant requirement. And it has also constricted the scope of what counts as a search in order to avoid unnecessarily burdening police officers. So that's one problem. The other problem is the reasonable expectation of privacy. This is quite simple this quite simply has a ratchet effect. The more police surveil, the more they use technology to, uh, to follow your movements, the less reasonable it is for you to expect um, that your movements will not be followed and that, they will, not be, that uh, they will not be viewed by the police. So the effect of a reasonable expectation of privacy tests means that the more police do, the less the Fourth Amendment protects you. And that's a problem. And it comes, uh, it comes to a head in this case. Okay, let's move on to the final case.
1: Clark. Yeah, so the last case is absolutely fascinating. It comes to us uh, from New Mexico out of the Tenth Circuit. Um, It it involves a situation where uh, police officers went onto private property without a warrant uh, at about 11 o'clock at night while it was raining in a rural area, uh, surprised uh, two brothers who um, uh, lived in the home. Um, A uh, kind of a shootout uh, ensued, and one of the brothers was killed. The question is whether the police officers, and there were three of them involved, are entitled to qualified immunity or whether they can be sued uh, for the death of one of the brothers because of the way the events transpired uh, and essentially did they cause a situation uh, where this uh, shootout was likely to occur by engaging in conduct that was a violation of the brothers' rights. That's the question before the Tenth Circuit.
2: Tell us about the, the evening in question, Evan. So the evening in question got off to a bad start when um, there was an altercation on the road between uh, one of the brothers and two women in the car. There was a road rage incident. Um, there was some back and forth. Maybe somebody was throwing up gang signs. Maybe somebody was tailgating somebody else. Anyway, um, at the end of the exchange, um, the... Uh, the brothers, uh, one of the brothers goes home. Um, and the police who respond to uh, the scene of this incident later decide to follow up and they decide to go by this guy's house, even though they don't suspect him of any crime. And there are no exigent circumstances that would justify them doing that. They're just, you know, following up.
1: They want to go interview him to determine uh, uh, essentially what happened during the road rage incident and, and determine whether he's intoxicated or not. Um, so basically, they just want want to do uh, an interview. This is not something where they're going to perform an arrest or anything like that.
2: Right. And But you wouldn't know that from the way that they actually approached his house. Um, they approached his house in the middle of the night. They had flashlights. Um, perhaps they announced that they were police. That is not even clear. Well, but let's it is be clear, clear about
1: something. It's important. They did this very surreptitiously. They had flashlights, but they only turned them on very intermittently. These were little LED flashlights. So in other words, they weren't walking towards the house, you know, shining their light at the house. This was a very clear attempt to surreptitiously approach the house, and that becomes very important in a moment.
2: Right. They're trying to gain a tactical advantage essentially. Um, they are not setting up uh, spotlights and saying, "Hey, we're the police. Come out with uh, with your hands up." They wouldn't have the authority to do that anyway because they weren't actually this is the guy's not a fugitive from justice. Um, but anyway,
1: yeah, so I mean, this this brings up a really important question, which is, if you are in a situation where there's no pressing need to talk to the subject that you want to interview, uh, you don't have a warrant, and you're not responding, you know, with a SWAT team, for example, you just want to talk to them. Do you show up at eleven o'clock at night when it's raining and try to sneak up on the house uh, in order to conduct that interview, which is what these police officers do? And the answer is emphatically no. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you were the neighbor. That was known to these brothers and and they liked you and you were welcome on the property. It would be incredibly foolish to try to sneak up on the house in the middle of the night in a rural area because you are likely to get shot. But these police officers, for reasons that are not explained in the opinion, and apparently they didn't really have a very good one, decide, yeah, we'll just go talk to this guy at 11 o'clock at night uh, and sneak up on his house. Um, This wasn't absolutely uh, disastrous decision. It was, it, was, it was bad law enforcement. It was, it was terrible tactics. Uh, and, and exactly what happened next is exactly what you would expect to happen next, which is the brothers were terrified. They knew somebody was outside. They weren't sure who it was. They thought it might be the people they'd gotten in an altercation with earlier on the road. And they armed themselves to defend themselves in their home, which they had every right to do.
2: Right. And the majority actually makes this point in the course of the opinion. Um, You do have the right to defend yourself um, in your own home uh, when people are aggressing upon your property or trespassing upon your property and they are threatening you. And police officers should, well, be aware of the law. They should be aware that you have the right to defend yourself and they should approach people with that in mind. And they should also have a fair measure of common sense. You don't approach people's homes at night um, surreptitiously with flashlights, maybe announce that you're police. But that's not even clear. Tell them that you've got the house surrounded and that if you come out, it'll be easier for you. I mean, this is threatening, quite frankly, terrifying behavior. And it's not surprising that somebody in in that house was moved to grab a gun and the consequences of it were tragic.
1: And basically what happened was uh, the two police officers who were sneaking up on the house uh, called in a third who responded, took up position in the back of the house. Uh, One of the brothers fired off a couple of rounds from a shotgun as warning shots. That much uh, uh, seems to be clear. He wasn't firing at anybody. He wanted to scare off whoever the intruders were. Um, But obviously at night it's a very fluid and scary situation you can't be perfectly sure what's happening and once shots are fired it 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 becomes a life-and-death situation and the police responded uh... with gunfire of their own and uh, one of the brothers was killed so and the question really in this case is does the massive double standard that normally applies between police and civilians apply also in this case and by that i mean for example um, Generally speaking, we as civilians will be responsible for the damages caused by our negligent behavior. Law enforcement officers are almost never responsible for their own negligence. It has to be deliberate, willful conduct in a 1983 case. Um, civilians are rarely indemnified for the damages that they cause. Police officers are virtually always indemnified for the damages that they cause. Uh, civilian employers are responsible through respondeat at Superior for the actions of their employees. Uh, Police departments do not face Responde at Superior. Um, Police officers generally have, um, under police contracts, uh, a week, 10 days, even two weeks before they have to give a statement, during which time they're entitled to all of the evidence, to all of the video, to everything that helps them come up with a story that's consistent with the known facts before they're required to give an interview. Civilians don't get the benefit of that, that delay. So it goes on and on and on. There's this massive double standard. But the one that's at issue in this case is... Something that Radley Balco uh, has pointed out before, and it's really important, um, in a situation where you have sudden uh, uh, eruption of of violence, as you do in this case, police officers will generally be given an extreme amount of leeway by the courts. And, and, and perhaps that's reasonable, because when you have a, a violent, sudden situation like that, you can't expect people to react perfectly, and we give them a lot of leeway. But the flip side is that civilians under the same circumstances are given virtually no leeway. Unlike a police officer, a civilian in this instance is supposed to know exactly what's going on, to make perfectly sound uh, tactical decisions, to know uh, everything that's possible to know, including, for example, if if he's surrounded by police as opposed to assailants. So that's an example of a really massive double standard where police in violent situations are given extreme leeway um, and, and it's understood that they can't be expected to act perfectly. The exact opposite is typically expected of civilians. And in this case, the 10th Circuit rejected that kind of double standard. Uh, there's a dissent in this case, Evan.
2: Yes, there is a dissent in this case, and this actually focuses on the officer who came came late, who came after um, the initial officers announced their presence and uh, things started to go bad. He was called in afterwards. um, And the uh, dissenting judge argued that he should be entitled to qualified immunity because all he was doing was reacting as best he could with a dangerous, volatile, moment-to-moment situation. And as a judge from the comfy confines of his chambers, he was not going to second-guess the police's judgment.
0: So if an officer arrives later at the scene, they have less responsibility.
1: Well, th- look, this is a really challenging question uh, as to this third officer's liability in this case. I-, I actually find myself pretty sympathetic with the dissent and with the officer. Um, the-, the, fr- the two officers uh, who responded initially, I think are definitely culpable. Um, they blew it on every level. They had absolutely no business trying to stalk up to this house in the middle of the night. Um, what they should have done is uh, come back in the daytime uh, and maybe call in advance. So, you know, a- ask the guy to come by the department for an interview um, or at a minimum, um, if they felt they really had to be there at night, they could have just stopped the, their car um, some distance away from the house, turn on their lights so that everybody could see that the police are there and ask the people to come out. They didn't do any of that. They just snuck up on the house. Um, that was that was just incredibly unwise, and, um, uh, and, and and they are culpable for that. The question becomes, what about the third officer who, re, who responded to provide backup? Um, there's no indication that he knew uh, that the situation had been uh, created by these two officers stalking up to the house. Uh, and by the the time he got there, um, things were, were headed downhill fast. And so I, I really don't have a big issue with what he did. Um, shots have been fired. In, in that kind of situation; it's life or death, you've got to respond in a way that, that protects your own life and those of your fellow officers, which is what he did. Now, if he had actual notice... Before he showed up that his two fellow officers had had uh, created this dangerous situation through their own misconduct, uh, then I think that would be different. But there's an interesting question whether he had a duty to apprise himself of that knowledge uh, or whether, you know, going into a tactically fluid situation, he was it was permissible for him to simply respond as best he thought, which is what he did.
2: Right. The difficulty is that you don't want to create a situation where officers who are later responding have a blank check to essentially make things worse because of what they, uh, the officers who initially arrived at the scene and did what they did uh, created. So, I mean, even if you focus on the fact that, yes, this guy came later, what did he have to do to apprise himself of the situation? He, obviously, he doesn't have to go through a checklist when officers are telling him, hey, we're under fire, uh, things are going badly. But what does he have to do to to establish context you know how many are there how did this situation get created all of those things could have been relevant to informing him and taking actions that could perhaps have been different he shot first he did not ask any qu- he did not identify himself as a police officer and somebody is dead and that is a tragedy
1: you know I, I think maybe one of the things that's, that's going on in the background of this case is that in this setting uh, we expect the officers to be respectful of people's homes. We expect them to be respectful of people's um, uh, right to defend themselves in their own homes. Um, And that's in sharp contrast to how we would have treated this home if, for example, there had been a suspicion that these guys have been selling maybe just a small quantity of marijuana out of the home. The home would have been completely fair ground uh, for the officers at that point. They could have responded any time, day or night, with a massive tactical assault with a SWAT team. The judiciary would have signed off on that, and the the, the safety and the uh, property interest of these brothers would have gone completely out the window even for a relatively trivial uh, conduct like perhaps selling marijuana. So when there's such a fine line where we treat their safety and their property interest as completely meaningless uh, under one circumstance – should we expect officers to realize that in only slightly different circumstance, suddenly all of those things become important again? It's quite a contrast.
2: Right, the sense that you get making your way through this case is that there is an operative mindset that the officers are um, that the officers are in the grips of, namely that if an individual is not responding with absolute, complete, unthinking submission to their request, then he is a threat, he is dangerous, and we should seek to preserve a tactical advantage that we have. Um, this guy is not a fugitive from justice, he's not even suspected of a crime, they should have taken a different approach.
0: Okay, that concludes the show. Thanks for listening, and please be sure to send comments and questions to shortcircuit at ij.org. Until next time, this is John Ross from the Institute for Justice, sanctioning you to get engaged.